Well, as you remain standing, let us turn our Bibles to the final book in God's Word once again, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we find ourselves in the fifth letter of Christ's seven letters to the churches. This evening we want to look at the letter to Sardis in verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. So let me read those verses for us and then pray briefly uh, once again for God to bless our study and we will begin together. So listen now as Christ speaks to His church this evening and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray once again. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would help us to hear this Word, that we might not only hear it, but keep it, and so find the blessing and benediction that it offers to us as Christ has promised. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, those of you that perhaps are diehard college football fans uh, may remember the name of a college football coach, George O'Leary. It was in 2001, after a successful enough career at Georgia Tech, that Notre Dame hired George O'Leary to be the head coach of the Fighting Irish. And he lasted for all of five days. Because in the intervening five days, the journalists had discovered no small number of lies on his resume. That he said he participated in college athletics in a way that he never did. That he earned education credentials that he never had. And one of the more shocking things about the entire story was that his resume had remained unchanged for 20 plus years. And no one had ever noticed before. Sometimes, isn't it true that One's reputation may not be altogether deserved. And such is the case with the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. What we're going to see tonight is that a church might fool the community, but a church can't fool Jesus. My kids, you always need to know that. That you may not fool Jesus, you cannot mock Jesus. Students, you can convince your friends, you can convince your classmates, you can convince your teammates that perhaps you love the Lord Jesus when you know you really don't, and they might believe you, but Jesus knows the true reality of the heart. 
And of course, the great warning of this fifth letter to the churches is to any local congregation to not be fooled into thinking they can fool the Savior who knows precisely how spiritually healthy that church exactly is, no matter the reputation that they have in the local community. So the letter to the church at Sardis is our theme briefly this evening. Three simple ways that I want you to see the Savior's words. Number one, the Savior's caution. Number two, the Savior's command. And number three, the Savior's comfort. So number one, the Savior's caution begins, notice verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write. A Sardis was formerly in a number of centuries before Jesus was speaking to them. It was the capital of the Lydian kingdom. It had been quite wealthy. Uh, by this time, it was little more than just a center for the woolen trade and uh, some sort of retail goods in the Roman Empire. It occupied something of a well-known Acropolis, so this city that was on a hill, literally on a hill, rather steep and large. It was the intersection of five major highways. And if the fourth letter, which was written to the church at Thyatira, if, if the messenger had taken the fourth letter to Thyatira and began the journey more or less due south to Sardis, it'd be like walking after this evening, delivering this word, and making it all the way down to Fair Park in Dallas, where the state fair is usually held. And there he would have found the church at Sardis. And what does this church need to know about Jesus? Well, you see how verse 1 continues. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So kids, do you know what the seven spirits of God represent? Who are the seven stars? I asked my children that last night as we were reading this text, and they all looked at me and said, hmm, and began to spout out answers that were very far from the truth. Much teaching remains to be done in the Stone household. So kids... Remember this in Revelation, whenever you see the phrase, the seven spirits of God, it's just Revelation's way, Jesus' way of talking about the fullness, the completeness of the Holy Spirit, because seven is just the number of fullness and completeness. The Holy Ghost is a sevenfold spirit. And the seven stars are what Jesus says at the end of Revelation 1, the seven angels, seven messengers, which we take to be the seven ministers of these seven churches there in Asia Minor. And then really what happens now in the second half of verse 1 is the true caution that Christ gives to the church. There's a local pastor that I came to know pretty well about five years ago. And he pastors what he would even tell you is a dying congregation. And I remember meeting him when he was going through an unusual season of hardship in his church. It was trying times. And uh, one day I came into his office to visit with him. And there, open on his table, was a book that he had evidently been reading right before I walked in. And it was this kind of church growth title that was popular in certain circles of evangelicalism at the time. And it was called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And what Jesus now does is place such a book in the hands of the angel at Sardis, this autopsy 
of a deceased church. Because you see his caution as verse 1 ends, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know, where my pastor friend knew that his church was dying, the church at Sardis had no clue that they were, as Jesus says, dead. The word there for reputation, depending on your Bible, you might have something of a footnote there. It actually is just the Greek word for name. The name of the church at Sardis was synonymous with life. You know, perhaps if you were converted in and around the area of Sardis and you met some well-meaning mature Christian, they would probably have said to you at this time in the first century, you know what you need to do? You've got to get to the church at Sardis. Such ministry, such activity, such vitality. And Jesus essentially says, yeah, but they're dead. What a terrifying thought that is. That to all worldly appearances, here is a church, here is an assembly seeming to teem with life. When Jesus says it's little more than just a spiritual corpse. And we want to investigate why he can say that. That is Christ's caution. And now you see in the following verses, Christ's command. Or really, you could say Christ commands. Because in verses 2 through 3, he just rattles off five simple commands. Command number one, notice verse 2, wake up. Or you could also translate it as be watchful. The city of Sardis, it's built on, as I said, this Acropolis, this large, rather steep hill. And so in centuries prior to Christ, it was assumed to be this city that was essentially impregnable, unassailable. Yet twice in its former history, the city had been sacked. And it had been sacked because they had so presumed upon the protection of the city that they actually didn't guard it. That at two different times over the course of about 250 to 300 years, if I remember correctly, in the same spot on the wall where it wasn't ever guarded, Uh, A man in the enemy army had scurried up the wall and initiated a successful attack that sacked the city so that by this time, when Jesus is speaking to Sardis, it was something of a watchword in the Sardis community. Be watchful, lest we fall asunder as they did before. And so Jesus, as he's saying, wake up, he's using language that everyone in Sardis knew exactly what he would have been talking about. Some of you, Jesus is saying, are spiritually comatose, spiritually asleep, and plunder is on the way if you don't wake up. You know, I wonder if some of you might need the spiritual command of wake up, even this evening, as something like Christ's word functioning in your heart as an altogether too loud alarm clock rings in the morning. And shocks you awake. Maybe you too might recognize you might need to wake up from spiritual slumber. Command number two, strengthen. You see how the text continues. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? The language that Jesus uses here about death. So in verse 1, he says, you are dead. But then verse 2, he says, you are about to die. And maybe a way that I could illustrate, for that, illustrate that for you is you, you want to think about the Sardis congregation as being on their deathbed. You know, it's, by all appearances, it's only a matter of small moments before that body dies. 
But hypothetically speaking, there's a near miraculous recovery available to that body on the deathbed. And so what Jesus is saying is strengthen what remains, the residual life that's there in your congregation. Because he says, it is about to die. And why is it that Sardis is so dead, according to Jesus, or so nearly dead? You see how verse 2 ends. Jesus announces, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, kids, did you know that you could offer works to the Lord that are inadequate and incomplete? You know, you might think about it as though you take a test to your teacher in school, and they might not finish grading it because they just mark it as incomplete. You didn't make it all the way through. So what is it about good works? What is it about works offered to the Lord that can be incomplete? Now, if you scan your Bible, you'll figure out quite quickly that there's a common answer from Genesis to Revelation about how good works offered to the Lord are actually incomplete in their essence. You'll notice, first of all, is that they're done in the flesh, not the Spirit. They're done out of external observance, not an internal devotion. Another way to say it is they're not done merely in the flesh. They're done out of formality. Just because God says we should do it, not out of a heart of true love, trust, and obedience. Uh, So many times throughout church history, you can find the church failing because it falls into this familiar foe that we might call formality. They just do it because the Bible says you must do it, thinking that God is pleased by the mere offering of formal obedience unto Him. You might remember the words from Isaiah that even Jesus Himself quotes, Their lips praise me, but what? Their hearts are far from me. So what it seems like is going on here at Sardis, you got a church of ministry, you got a church of vitality, you got a church of activity. They're doing all these things in the name of the Lord. But Jesus says, no, you're actually not doing it from a place of true devotion. Therefore, your works are not complete in the sight of my God. So commands number three, four, and five, verse fourth, notice verse three, remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and Repent. Remembrance unto repentance is the simple solution to the Sardis situation. And isn't it always that way? Remembrance unto repentance tends to be the light that guides you home from the darkness. Maybe you're in the midst of a responsibility right now. Maybe you're in the midst of a relationship right now where you feel lost. Repentance will guide you home in the midst of a relationship or in the midst of a responsibility where you feel as though you're surrounded by darkness of your own making. Repentance is the light that will guide you back to the Father. This is Christ's command. Wake up. When I was a student pastor, the three years I was a student pastor, I was either single or engaged Uh, to Emily. And so I often would pass a number of weeks throughout the year with members in the church asking me to house sit for them, you know, take care of their pets and take care of their yard. And uh, one spring semester, a particular family in the church, they asked me not to house sit, but to babysit the kids for a week. And they had two boys. One was in middle school and one was in high school. And I knew the family pretty well. The students were 
are pretty devoted to our student ministry, had a good relationship with the women. I said, sure, why not? I'll take care of them for the week. And as they were giving me the instructions of, you know, how to get them to and fro from practice and church and school and whatnot, there was only one thing that they warned me about that caused me this initial pause. They said the older one, whose name will remain nameless, he has a real hard time of waking up in the morning. And I thought, well, sure, it can't be that hard. Well, it was that hard. <laughs> Two days went by, and it would take me at least 25 minutes to rouse him from bed. And if you know anything about my personality, I do not accept such lack of responsibility. <laughs> so, I told him on night number two, I'm not waking you up tomorrow. You have an alarm clock, and if you do not wake up, I'm just going to let you sleep as long as you want, and then when you wake up, we're going to immediately march our way into the school office, and you'll have to tell them why you're suddenly here at 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> and sure enough, the day went exactly like that, although he made it there about 11.30 a.m. in the morning, all because he didn't think that my warning was actually true. And what you get here in the letter to the church at Sardis is a warning from Jesus Christ what's going to happen if they don't what? Wake up. Look at verse 3 as it ends. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. A kids who never want Jesus to say, I will come against you. You want to hear Jesus say, I will come for you. But what he says is, if you don't wake up, there's a time coming when I will arrive like a thief and I will arrive against you. And some of you might know how Jesus loves in the Gospels, doesn't he, to talk about his arrival, his return as being like a what? Thief in the night. It's a normal way to describe the unexpected nature of his return. If you don't wake up, I'm going to come at a time when you are not ready, when you are not expecting, and my coming will not be for you. My coming will be against you. Christ's caution. Your name is that of being alive, but you are dead. Christ's command is wake up. And he gives now, doesn't he, a comfort. The Savior's comfort in verse 4. Look at what he says. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Uh, the language there of soiled garments is meant to be as offensive as it could possibly picture in your minds. It seems like every Friday I'll be talking with my oldest son Hudson about his coming soccer game on a Saturday, and it's not too long into that conversation that he'll ask me, hey, Daddy, what color do I have to wear? You know, which, which kit is required for the game tomorrow, the black one or the white one? Because he knows that correct clothing is, is necessary. And Jesus, in his kingdom, says correct clothing is necessary for you to be with me. And what he's saying here is there's only a few in Sardis that have correct clothing. It's actually the mere opposite of what we've seen in the last two letters. At Pergamum and Thyatira, it was only a few who were unfaithful. In this church that has a reputation for being alive, what Jesus says, it's only a few that are actually faithful. Most are living spiritually with soiled garments. But you see the comfort, what he says, for the, the few that are faithful. He says, they will walk with me in white, for they 
are worthy. Uh, Don't mistake that latter clause. Why are they worthy? Because they've persevered in their trust and repentance. That you know as well as I do that we're all born into sin. Therefore, there's a time when Jesus will return, when all of you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And in your sin, you stand before Him with a garment that is stained black to the very last stitch. And there's nothing you can do to put on the correct clothing that must be white. But there's everything that Jesus can do. In His mercy and love for His own people, He takes away that garment of sin, doesn't He? He puts on a a new garment on His people. One that the text says is white, but supernaturally it becomes white by being dipped in an ocean of crimson blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's the garment that anyone must receive if they're to be with the king. It's the comfort of Jesus Christ saying, the few of you who are faithful there at Sardis, you are going to get the white clothing. Not just that. Look at how the comfort continues in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This metaphor of a book of life, it's, it's all over the Bible. You find it in Exodus, you find it in Psalms, uh, you can find it in Philippians, you can find it in Luke, of course, Revelation as well. It would have been very obvious to any first century listener there in Sardis, because they knew as well as anyone else in those first century cities and towns that the local town officials had a citizen register in which they wrote down, the citizens of that city. And you were only erased from that register when you died. What is Jesus saying here? He writes the names of his people in his book with his instrument, with ink that can't be erased. Such is the comfort that those who conquer in their faith, persevere in their trust, have from the Lord Jesus Christ. I have written your name in my book, and it is not possible to erase it. And I will speak your name at the last day to my Father and before all the angels, such as my pleasure and my faithful few. I wonder if you would find yourself counted in the faithful few of Christ's comfort. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. You know, it could be interesting as you drive home tonight or if you have the occasion over dinner to think about the famous figures in Presbyterian and Reformed church history. I suppose we probably would all agree that the best known theologian in our heritage is a man named John Calvin. And I suppose that if many of us were asked to give some sort of description of his ministry and theology, we probably might say something like John Calvin was the theologian of God's sovereignty. But another mighty theologian in the 19th century named B.B. Warfield came along and wrote a rather famous article in which he said, no, 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 the right way to think about John Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Because if you read through his classic works or work, the institutes of the Christian religion, you'll find the Holy Spirit, Calvin's affection and appreciation and adoration of the Spirit bursting forth all over the place where he might say in summary fashion a sentence just like this, let us reflect upon the way in which the Spirit of the Lord 
acts upon his saints. Let us reflect upon the way in which God's Spirit acts upon his people. And that's what I want to do as we begin to close. Because we dare not miss the significance that what the church at Sardis needed to know about Jesus was what? He has the Holy Spirit. And the reason that is significant because of two final things I want to mention. What we must reflect upon is the same thing that Sardis reflect upon. Which number one is we need the Spirit's work of revival. Some of you might not like the category of revival depending on your own understanding of recent American history and the excesses that tend to go along with revivalism. But you could use Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, as a proof text that Christ loves revival. Wake up! That's simply a command to awakening. That's simply a command to revival. What the church at Sardis needed surely is what the church in America, so many of our local churches Maybe in ways we don't even realize this very church needs. The Spirit's work of revival. Maybe we need to grow in the heart and the affection and the yearning and the longing like the saints of old who prayed for, who longed for the Spirit's work of revival to show up again in Christ's church. But if that was going to show up, what of course we need is the second thing in the passage, the Spirit's work in the gospel. Not just the Spirit's work of revival, Spirit's work in the gospel. Look again at verse 3. He says in that third command, remember, remember what, Jesus? Remember what you have received and heard. Kids, what do you think that Jesus would say they need to remember that they heard and received? There's no doubt, certainly in the way the New Testament uses these commands and words. Remember the gospel is all that Jesus says. Because perhaps you know how often it is that churches can build a mighty ministry, can gain a platform of of prominence, can become a church that has a mighty name in the community. But if you look just a little deeper, you realize it's because they've relegated the gospel to some other place than that of first importance. And we've seen in recent years, some of us know these stories, how many mighty ministries, churches that had this platform of prominence in the last decade in America, have all disappeared because they didn't keep the gospel at the place of first importance. So what we need is what the church of Sardis needed, the spirit of Jesus Christ, his work of revival, his work in The gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us the humility, the meekness and honesty of heart necessary to examine our own hearts individually, to examine our own households and even this household that is Redeemer Presbyterian Church, that we might discern where we actually might be dead when we've thought all along we've been alive. Lord, if nothing else, we pray that you would help us to yearn evermore for fullness of the Spirit, that we might walk in His truth, that we might walk in His holiness. Give us, we pray, by Your sovereign grace, that great work of revival where we need it. Give us, we pray, in every place, the Spirit's work of the gospel.
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number 650. As we think of the gospel of our Redeemer, let us sing of our Redeemer together.